Hebrews Bible Study, number 13, Typology and Melchizedek, part 1, for lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. After having spent three sessions preparing to learn about the connection between our Lord Jesus and Melchizedek, it is now finally time to start unpacking what the author of Hebrews has to say about this mysterious figure. Who is Melchizedek? From Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24, after his return from the defeat of Shador Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let honor, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Melchizedek's name, which translates to My King is Right, or King of Righteousness, only occurs twice in the Old Testament. Once in Genesis 14, verse 18, and once in Psalm 110, verse 4. That's it. Yet the author of Hebrews emphasizes him to the point of declaring him superior to Abraham. Why would this be? First, 
let us discuss the obvious reason, which is that Melchizedek points to Christ in every detail given about him. He is the king of Salem, which is an early name for Jerusalem. Christ Jesus prepares the new Jerusalem at which he shall reside with believers, from John 14, verse 3, and Revelation chapter 21. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, the two elements in the Eucharist which Christ established, Luke 22, verses 14 through 23. Melchizedek somehow knew of Abram's exploits in delivering Lot, and expressed a benediction which shows religious authority over him. Christ, too, expresses personal knowledge of Abraham and speaks of having greater authority than him. John 8, verses 48 through 59. Melchizedek is king and priest over Salem. So, too, is Christ our king and also our high priest. Of all types in the Bible, Melchizedek is the strongest. What is a type? In scripture, typology is a biblical foreshadowing of some aspect of the New Testament found in the Old, by persons, laws, and events, rather than by direct prophecy. If an Old Testament personage is a type, then they are intended to foreshadow Christ or the gospel by various aspects of their life. St. Paul identifies Adam as a type of Christ in Romans 5. In Galatians 4, Hagar and Sarah are depicted as serving a typological function depicting the church-era distinction between those enslaved by the law and those freed by the gospel. The feast days of the Old Testament, in fact the entirety of the ceremonial law, are considered types of Christ in that they pointed to him, Colossians 2, verse 17. These connections are made in scripture, though we must be careful not to engage in typomania, seeing types where scripture has not pointed us. This is important to our discussion today. It is one thing to say that there are similarities between a person in the Old Testament and Christ, and given enough similarities, we might even say that their life is typological in nature. For instance, King David is clearly shown to be a type in scripture, as is Melchizedek and even Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame. However, a problem arrives when someone starts seeing types that are not centered around Christ and the gospel, when we forget that Revelation 19 verse 10 clearly says that the testimony of Christ is the spirit of prophecy. This gives us a Christological principle, which also, therefore, gives us boundaries for typology. The Roman Catholic Church arrives at the practice of praying to the saints through typology, proclaiming that the kingdom of Judah was typologically connected to the kingdom of heaven. Just as the common citizen would have to go through intermediaries to get to the king, so too does the common Christian have to go through meritorious saints in order to obtain God's favor most of the time, especially Mary, whom they claim is queen of heaven because of Judah's queen mother practice. The problem is that scripture does not say that the current kingdom of heaven operates according to the traditions of man and nor does the word even hint at it. 
It is an abuse of the typological method of interpretation. Just as the abuses of gematria, meanings of names, double fulfillment in prophecies, and so forth, one might use typology to justify saying anything and then claim the Bible teaches it. Yet with that unfortunate practice, we end up with uncomfortable implications that are not addressed by the innovators. If the kingdom of heaven operates under the same habits as the kingdom of Judah, does that mean Christ has more than one bride? After all, nearly all of the kings of Judah practiced polygamy. Is the Trinity an understatement, given the kingly imperative in Judah to have multiple candidates for the throne? Such questions reveal a mercenary use of typology on Rome's part, since they are unwilling to have a one-to-one -one comparison between Judah and heaven here. It is only used to justify a practice they wanted to have in the first place. Mary is called Queen of Heaven or Queen Mother from typology, yet she is also called Ark of the New Covenant through typology. Which is it? Was the original Ark of the Covenant thus a type of the Queen Mother figures that show up in the histories of Judah? For that matter, since the Law of Moses foreshadowed Christ, why not command observance of the law instead of living under the new covenant? It seems to me that proper typology will always point to our Savior in a prophetic manner. Lest we confuse the faith, it cannot have actionable consequences in the life of the believer or the normal operations of the church. Melchizedek is indeed a type of Christ. But the implications of his office as a king and priest, his superiority to Abraham, etc., are all discussed satisfactorily by the author of Hebrews. We need not look into further ideas which are not supported by the text. We cannot, as the Mormons do, establish a Melchizedek priesthood here on earth, as this is merely an extension of the typological thinking not something explicitly endorsed in scripture. For someone to establish a Melchizedek priesthood here on earth as though the king of Salem himself ordained it through a laying on of hands is as untenable as praying to the saints just because King David was a type of Christ. We must look to the text, establish what the text is saying, and go no further. But as this passage does not merely discuss typology, but also history and theological details, now we may engage in commentary. Verses 1 and 2 say, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. Melchizedek, by his very existence, demonstrates that there was a priesthood and a godly nation-state before Israel's founding. By nature, this separates him from the Abrahamic heritage without separating him from God, despite what certain Judaizing factions might say. Thus, Christianity is an Abrahamic religion in the sense that we share the faith of Abraham, Romans 4.16. But at the same time, it is not an Abrahamic religion 
in that physical descent from Abraham or having connections to the Levitical priesthood do not matter one whit to us. The priesthood of Christ, according to the order of Melchizedek, demonstrates this. Permit a little speculation here, but it appears that the author of Hebrews brings up Melchizedek to demonstrate to a congregation tempted by Jewish religion that the true faith is much older than Abraham. Abraham is of great importance, but contra what dispensationalists, Jews, and Muslims might say, there is no need to claim him. Abraham, like us, is a convert to a faith which Melchizedek already preached. By a name, which means king of righteousness and being king over a place named peace, he pictures Christ, who indeed by his divine nature is king of righteousness and king of peace. These titles properly belong to God alone. That these titles were conferred to Melchizedek during his reign as a foreshadowing of Christ also demonstrates the distinction which Christianity enjoys. In the Mosaic law, ruler and priest are strictly separate. Not so with our Lord Jesus. Verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The root word translated as resembling is aphomoyo, which usually has a definition closer to assimilation or to make like. However, it is in the passive participle, aphomoyomenos, meaning that he is passively made to exemplify Christ. This is not to say that the man, like Enoch or Elijah, lived forever, nor does it mean that Melchizedek was Christ, as the two are made separate by this verb. Melchizedek was made to picture Jesus rather than identify as one with him. The author is thus not establishing some divine quality in Melchizedek, contra what the Qumran community and other cultists believed. Uh, see the Reading and Evaluating the Dead Sea Scrolls series for more details. But explaining that the exclusion of any genealogy or detail regarding lifespan is an intentional omission by Moses, more properly by the Holy Spirit who inspired Moses, to serve the greater typological purpose of pointing to Christ. Yet in this verse, which states he continues a priest forever, we are given an important detail that indeed Melchizedek is a saint residing in heaven. Such would not be the case if, as perhaps the enemies of Christendom in the first century AD would argue, Melchizedek's priestly position were illegitimate or of pagan origin. By saying his priestly operations continue, the author grants legitimacy to Melchizedek, which establishes him to be of the same, or superior even, status as the Levitical priesthood. We might also note that since Israel was God's ecclesia, or church, on earth until Christ's passion, yet Melchizedek and his priesthood are separate from it. This also goes against the harder readings of extra ecclesiam nulla salus, or outside the church there is no salvation. If an individual separate from Israel proper is declared a saint, 
than such might be said of those who are separate from the historic apostolic churches, there is more room for Mueller's felicitous inconsistency on account of this verse. Now let's read verses 4 through 10. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This passage is simple to understand. The inferior grants tithes to the superior. The superior before then grants blessings to the inferior regarding a spiritual hierarchy. With this, the author of Hebrews is establishing that the Melchizedek priesthood is, in every single respect, superior to the Levitical priesthood, that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, and if he is superior to Abraham, then he is most definitely superior to Levi. Thus, the ministry of Christ, as we will cover next week, is better than anything that could be offered in the Jerusalem temple. Now, we might get mixed up because verse 8 does say, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. The notion might be asserted by those who wish to see a Christophany in Melchizedek that somehow this means he was an eternal person. However, the issue is, as we established, that the Greek does not permit Melchizedek and Jesus Christ to be the same person. It is more likely then, in verse 8, that the author is getting at his living as a saint, having a guaranteed eternal life, that means that those tithes which he received having a continuing ministry even after his death, is something that establishes his superiority overall. But that is a matter more for next week as well. We will see that and rejoice, hopefully, in this deep, advanced doctrine. Amen and amen.